Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm Damien Fantato, digital editor of FT Advisor. Months of working from home and the stress associated with worrying about health and finances have meant that we've all been a little bit vulnerable over the past few months. So what can advisors learn from the coronavirus pandemic about working with vulnerable clients? And does the Financial Conduct Authority's recently published guidance on vulnerable clients include anything that advisors in particular should bear in mind? And what are the most common pitfalls when it comes to dealing with vulnerable clients? With me to discuss these issues are Alex Roberts, Senior Policy Advisor at Tradebody PIMFA, and Claudia Clay, Director of Risk and Regulation at advice firm The Private Office. Hello both. Hello. Hello. So, Alex, uh, let's start with you. Uh, what do you feel that the, this pandemic, this period of lockdown in particular, has uh, taught us, advi- well, the think- advisor community, about um, uh, dealing with vulnerable clients and how to advise them? Well, the pandemic obviously has brought vulnerable customer issues into sharp focus. Um, I think it's created new areas of vulnerability um, as the very parameters of who falls within the category of a vulnerable customer have shifted. I mean, people who previously were not vulnerable may now find that they need additional help. Um, Those who are already vulnerable may find that their situation has been exacerbated by the crisis. Um, I would take, for example, the elderly, over 70s who prior to the crisis may have been perfectly able to manage their financial affairs. Now, due to COVID-19, they're in that category of heightened risk and they may be self-isolating and shielding and um, there may be additional stresses and uh, which may lead to mental health issues. So clearly um, the pandemic has had uh, an effect uh, overall. if you look at the research that the financial uh, that the FCA carried out um, back at the end of 2019 to inform their financial life survey, in that they already found that 46% of the population of the adult population that amounts to 24.1 million people already displayed a characteristic of vulnerability. Um, that I think, as you said, we can assume that that figure has increased in over the last six months. Um, so I think we're facing a situation where firms have been thrown into um, a situation where they have to deal with these issues uh, immediately. Uh, so, for example, they've had to ensure that their communication channels were appropriate to um, it, it allow access for people who had additional difficulties due to the pandemic. They've also had to ensure uh, that they um, act with greater flexibility uh, in order to accommodate people who find themselves in difficulty. So, I think what the pandemic has done, it has prompted firms to review and reassess uh, their different policies and processes in order to accommodate um, the growing needs of of vulnerability which which have been created by the crisis. Um, And so I think many firms have consolidated their processes and uh, and these responses and innovations, I think, which have arisen during this time of crisis uh, are here to stay uh, in uh, going forward. And um, I think there's also been an overall increase in a sense of fairness uh, of approaching uh, the, the, the products and ser- the, the use of products and services so that firms are looking not just at um, their commercial interests, but also in ensuring that they are seen to be fair in dealing with people in this particularly difficult situation. So I think if there's one um, good positive outcome, if there are any of the pandemic, is that it has forced firms to deal with these situations in a man- sooner and in a manner that probably they wouldn't have done had the pandemic not occurred. So it, I think it's just brought things to the fore and made firms take action. 
And Claudia, as an advice firm, how have you approached this? What have your advisors learnt uh, about dealing with vulnerable clients from this period? Well, I think if anything, it's reinforced my view and our firm's collective view that it's something the industry needs to tackle. And it's demonstrating that we care is, is really important. And this is a particular subject that I'm passionate about. And it's at the forefront of all of our thinking, along with the wider TCF, treating customers fairly. And uh, it's something that we always think about when we're considering our own corporate strategy. And doing the right thing for clients is at the front and centre of what we do. And this is... As, as Alex has brought to the fore, that doing the right thing will actually be different for every client. And, and the pandemic, as, as Alex quite rightly points out, has brought a new wave of vulnerabilities for people and in many cases exacerbating exacerbated existing ones. And it's important to recognise for us, particularly as a, the type of firm we are, that vulnerability is a combination of actual and potential vulnerability and, and they will typically interlink. So when one driver is apparent, it's likely that there will be others as well. For example, in the context of the pandemic, if somebody's newly having to care for a loved one, there might also be a loss of wages. The sick partner might previously have been the one to manage the finances. There's the obvious impact on, on mental well-being, And it's reinforced the transience factor too. And what's critical for us is to equip our advisors and, and equally importantly, our client-facing staff to be able to recognise the signs and, and act accordingly. Uh, and it, it's recognising that not all vulnerabilities will be chronic, permanent or even tangible in some cases. And the key learn for us is, is being prepared and, and to prepare ourselves. We really need to understand the characteristics of vulnerability that are likely to present in our client base and, and how they might manifest themselves. So we are largely active in the investment and pension aspects of planning and wealth management and a lot of our clients are approaching or they're already in the decumulation phase and when we've mapped the common characteristics of our clients the the typical ones that are perhaps coming to the fore more than ever before relate to technological capability and and it will come on to it a bit later but one of the four drivers of vulnerability as the fca sees it is is capability and in the context of the use of technology it's certainly something that can get overlooked, particularly in an environment where we're all relatively comfortable working with technology and it, it's part of the day job for us. So it, it means that accessibility for clients is, is incredibly important. And one of the key learns for us is that that flexibility in how we communicate with our clients is, is crucial. And we tend to use Microsoft Teams. I know there's lots of other virtual meeting systems available but in our experience even that one system creates a very different user experience for people who don't purchase a software license for example it's different depending on which type of device you use so in order for us to help our clients engage with it we've sent out a microsoft user guide for guests who who use the technology that we do but equally recognise that flexibility from us if they prefer to speak on the phone, if they prefer to use a different type of technology, if they prefer to do things in writing, we're, the flexibility is, is, is very important for us. I think it's sometimes easy to assume that vulnerable people are just elderly people who have Alzheimer's and um, you know might not be able to necessarily... Um, interact with people in the in the same in the same way but vulnerability is something that also comes and goes i guess isn't it um 
are there any particular um, regulatory obligations, particularly at a time like this, towards um, checking in on someone to make sure whether they're they've become vulnerable, um, Alex? Well, I think that the typical situation is client reviews. And I think at this stage, I mean, one of the most important things for, for firms was in a situation where um, working from home and where uh, it, client communications might become difficult is checking with the clients, reaching out to their clients. And I think a lot of our firms have, in fact, done this. Uh, I think the majority of our firms have told us that as soon as the, you know, so back in March, April time, when the pandemic just started uh, to affect people in this country, um, one of the things that the majority of firms did was reach out to their clients and ensure that uh, they were comfortable with the new communication systems, ensure that um, they didn't have any particular concerns. I think there was a big concern at the beginning uh, with uh, with um, market volatility and uh, people were concerned about what the situation was with their pensions and with investments. Um, and I think uh, it was very important from uh, the perspective of our, of our firm members to reach out to their clients, to reassure them uh, both about their, their investments and that they were being looked at and, and, and looked after and also that they had the right communication systems in place if they needed to get in touch. So I think it was a big thing for firms uh, right at the start, which obviously is ongoing now. Um, but I think in terms of, of moving to a different type of communication system like, like Zoom and Teams, um, the feedback that we generally got from our firms was that the majority of their clients seemed to be quite um, positive and about, work, about using the new technology. Um, and in fact, a lot of them embraced the the new work you know the systems of um, communicating on online through Zoom or other or Teams and other systems like that and in fact our firms are generally even the elderly clients seem to embrace this overall and our firms are pleasantly surprised uh, that the majority have adapted to this new norm. Having said that, as uh, Claudia was pointing out, there are communicate you know access issues that some people may just not have the the um, technology in place to be able to use that. Um, other people may not be able to, for their specific communication needs, uh, be able to use this sort of technology. Um, and so I think it's very important for firms to be able to offer a multi-channel service. And the guidance that the FCA has put out makes that very clear that uh, firms do need to offer a variety of channels of communication so that the consumer can ultimately choose the one that best suits their particular needs. And so I think it's very important for firms to do that and be aware of these differences. Um, the other issue with Zoom um, but is also that, um, the, there's that you lose the face-to-face -face contact that um, is often very typical of the advisor-client relationship. And I think that by losing that, it becomes harder to pick up those in indicators of vulnerability um, and those signals and those hints that, because the problem, part of the problem is, is that a lot of vulnerable customers um, are not very um, proactive in disclosing their vulnerabilities. And so it is something that the advisor has to pick up upon. And obviously it's much easier in a face-to-face 
face-to-face context than, than over Zoom. Uh, but that's the same difficulty as you have over the telephone, for example. And I think it's very important for advisors to be uh, trained and you know, frontline staff generally to be trained to pick up on those indicators in all, throughout all different mediums. So they need to be able to do that, whether it's face-to-face, whether it's Zoom, whether it's telephone. Um, they need to be able to be alert to how to um, take um, actively extract this information from the clients uh, and you can do this you know the, the the guidance also provides ways of doing this like by showing sympathy and empathy by asking the right questions uh, by also one of the other things that the guidance points out is by um, uh, telling the clients uh, the, ver- the variety of support and adaptations that the firm offers in relation to people with particular needs because if you do that then they're more likely to volunteer information about their own personal needs um, but so whilst the, the technology can be a barrier to a certain extent, I think as long as the right training is there, that people are able to, to identify them for a variety of mediums and also provide multi-channel access, then I think that you can comply with it. Mm-hmm. And Claudia, as, a, as, a, as an advice firm, how have you been um, making sure that when you rely on video conferencing technology that you're um, doing right by your vulnerable customers from a from a regulatory point of view, but also from a, a human point of view. I think um, Alex makes a very good point, and certainly in our experience as a as practitioners in in this space, the vast majority of our clients have engaged really positively with the use of technology, and it's not something we've ever really pushed before, although it's been available in the background. And with a bit of assistance, getting people set up notwithstanding what we said about flexibility for those who do need and and, and definitely should have uh, the service delivered via a different means. In in a way, this is liberating because advisors are very well placed to identify vulnerabilities. And and Alex says, one of the things we're doing in response to the publications and, and the situation is adapting the training we give our advisors. It's moving a lot more away from the theoretical to the real life examples and bringing it to life in the context of our our clients and our own experiences. But the the Zoom or the, the, the virtual meetings, albeit not directly face-to-face in the same way, actually we, we are finding we get more FaceTime with our clients, albeit virtual. And it allows, particularly in the context of the more vulnerable, it allows friends, relatives, other professional advisors to join in meetings very, very easily. So actually, the logistical challenges that we might have faced before getting the right people together at the same time are are much easier to, to deal with. And equally, the ability to video record calls is is great, not only from a record keeping perspective, but it allows the clients to replay the discussions and revisit and check their recollection of what was said. And and it helps with the decision making. And equally, some people, particularly the more vulnerable, feel a lot more comfortable in their own homes. And, And this is opening up opportunities that we perhaps hadn't really acknowledged or explored before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Alex, a, a month or so ago, the FCA published um, uh, new guidance on uh, supporting vulnerable customers. And broadly speaking, it found that lots of firms were doing the right thing, though it did find there were still issues uh, of vulnerable uh, clients not being considered uh, by firms. What Was there anything in that um, paper that you think uh, advisors should specifically um, look at or consider 
So the FCA published its first guidance back in 2019, in July 2019, and then the revised guidance this summer. There was some delay due to COVID. But um, the, I think that broadly it hasn't, apart from some changes in relation to the scope and a distinction, and that they've changed the distinction between actual and potential vulnerability and created this spectrum of vulnerability, um, there hasn't been any major substantive changes to the guidance as it was back in 2019. So there shouldn't be any major surprises. I think they've got rid of the distinction between actual and potential because I think that there the problem was that um, it was creating a bit of confusion in the sense that some people were thinking, okay, so there are people with no vulnerabilities, people with actual, people with potential, when in, instead, I think it's right to say that we're, we're all potentially vulnerable, um, rather than there being people with no, vulner no vulnerabilities. What they've done is created the spectrum whereby um, firms, everyone, all, everybody, all clients sit on the, spe on the spectrum of vulnerability and firms have to assess um, which vulnerabilities, which vulnerabilities people have um, which are creating the greatest harm and act proactively to prevent uh, vulnerabilities increasing because I think one of the points that the guidance make is the fact that uh, if you have one vulnerability you're likely as Claudia indicated earlier um, you're quite likely to have additional ones or for one vulnerability to then cause other ones and so one thing that is quite clear in the guidance is that firms have to take a preventative approach so that when they identify that somebody has a particular type of vulnerability, like a health vulnerability, for example, they need to step in and actually proactively prevent, try and, and limit other vulnerabilities from arising, like financial ones that might arise as, as a result of that. So I think it's, it's this preventative approach which firms need to, to look out for and, and consider when looking at their, at their client basis and uh, ensuring that um, that they don't let vulnerabilities exacerbate um, as a result of, of not intervening at the right time. I think that's one thing that, uh, that comes out from the, from the revised guidance. Uh, Claudia, was that your takeaway from the, the guidance as well? Do you have any other um, thoughts on, 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 on the guidance? Well, I think the FCA has always been pretty clear in its view of treating customers fairly and how firms should treat vulnerable clients. And for firms that are already embracing these concepts, I, I don't think it changes a huge amount, but what it does do is provide examples. It sets out clearly what it means, and it also gives firms more of a structure in terms of the practical actions and some ideas of what they can do to, to actually help deliver on their obligations. And, you know, the clarification it's given has, has proved a very good basis for conversation within our firm and we always like to review our approach to these things and, and we have been reflecting on things in, in light of the pandemic and as I said earlier what we're doing is adapting our training strategy a little bit. We're developing the advisor toolkit to help them have the right conversations with clients to help them identify and indeed respond to any vulnerabilities that they do identify and Whilst we, we have certain business processes that are designed for a good reason, what we have made sure is that there is adequate flexibility around all of those. So anybody dealing with somebody who, who displays any signs of vulnerability and needs to be dealt with in a slightly different way, then all of our staff are empowered to, to do that and do what they need to do to help get the right outcomes. And 
a lot of the MI we have as a business, we have tweaked that so we can start focusing in a little bit more and a little bit differently on some of these aspects. So our advice quality assurance is a, a good example of how we can tighten up on the documentation of this process. And that's something that firms and advisors potentially have have struggled with in the past through where through not documenting the real rich information that the advisors tend to know about their clients but keep in their heads. Mm-hmm. Claudia, just to stay with you for a minute, so what do you feel are the, the, the main challenges um, that advisors have when it comes to handling uh, vulnerable clients? Um, you mentioned documentation there, uh, for example. Um, what are the main pitfalls? What do you feel are the things that advisors are most likely to get wrong? Well, I think to to go back to a point Alex made earlier, vulnerability is not a label clients or advisors are particularly fond of. It it does tend to imply a sign of weakness and it's commonly an uncomfortable subject for advisors to tackle. And it's not something clients tend to volunteer about themselves. So um, knowingly or unconsciously, there's there's always a risk that advisors might not face up to or might not identify some of the vulnerabilities or or indeed they might not equate the information they establish about a client to being a vulnerability particularly in the context of so many aspects being transient and a big part of my job is is working with advisors to help shape their thinking and help give them the confidence and the the tools they need to be able to not only recognize but discuss and document and address the the vulnerabilities that may manifest themselves. And I speak to a lot of advisors about a lot of clients and in conversation, they have so much information about the individual in their heads and capturing it on the file consistently, meaningfully, and in a way that anybody who had any interaction with that client could access easily. For example, notes on our back office system. So if a client calls up one of our client service team, good notes that are available instantly really help us tailor our service to the person who who we're talking to at any given time. So I think those are the main things. And then Alex, what do, you, what do you think? What do you feel are the main the pitfalls for advisors when it comes to vulnerability? Um, well, I definitely agree agree with Claudia in the sense that the um, feedback that we've generally had is very much uh, on difficulties in identifying vulnerable customers. I think that is a real issue, um, and that's partly because, um, as, 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 as has been indicated, as we've previously said, customers to clients tend to be quite reticent about disclosing vulnerabilities. Uh, they don't like the label of it. They, they also sometimes not, may not consider the relevance of disclosing a vulnerability. They may not want to discuss matters that are personal and private to them. Uh, sometimes they may even think that uh, disclosing these things may have a negative impact on the outcome of the conversation that they're having with their advisor. Um, or or they may also not even be aware that they're vulnerable. I mean, you know, there's a whole variety of reasons why identification is very difficult. Um, and with that, I think uh, specific training, more training on, on asking the right questions, on showing empathy and sympathy with the client, uh, and, and asking these open-ended questions and being able to be attuned and pick up any slight indicators is very important because I think this is a big difficulty. Um, 
trans invulnerability is another one because it's very difficult to know when the vulnerability starts, when it ends, and how to deal with it in that respect. Third-party access issues uh, is another issue which I think can cause difficulties because um, the guidance does emphasize the importance about flexibility and treating your customers with, with flexibility and allowing third-party access in the appropriate situations. Uh, but our firms as regulated firms have a myriad of rules and regulations that they have to follow, you know, ranging from um, ID and address verification to uh, money laundering require regulation requirements um, and, and GDPR issues, all these things which were formulated without vulnerable customers in mind. And obviously, as, a, as an advisor, you have to sometimes find yourself in the invidious position of either breaching the rules in order to accommodate the vulnerable customer um uh, an example is for is uh, the difficulty facing um when you're trying to protect a customer from scams and frauds, but about, and about at the same time allowing legitimate third party support. So I think it's balancing these conflicting needs, uh, which uh, often is a, is a difficulty for, for advisors. And um, whilst there has been some guidance and clarification within the guidance provided by the FCA, um, I think there's still scope for, for, for more guidance in this area because there are there are pitfalls um, in, in relation to trying to balancing these opposing needs. Mm -hmm. Claudia, would you feel that you would need more guidance in that particular area that uh, Alex just mentioned? Well, I would say that guidance is always useful and the more guidance we can be provided with, and it, it definitely helps make sure that we're on the right track. And mm -hmm. the FCA uh, always gives us a framework, but padding it out is, is definitely helpful because helping us interpret it in the way they expect us to interpret it and, and evidence what we're doing and doing it in the right way. But I also think that, you know, firms who start their journey with doing the right thing for the client will always end up in the right place because that, that's the main driver. And if it does involve third parties, then there are protocols that can be followed to make sure that they are legitimate. There are legal documents to support it generally. Mm -hmm. There are sort of third party professional advisors that can be brought into the process as well. Um, we, we do have a number of real life examples where we face that exact challenge. And so far we, we've managed, we believe to deal with them in an appropriate way and in a way that protects the, the client first and foremost and delivers in our regulatory obligations as well. GDPR, notwithstanding, that does make things slightly tricky, um, but it's definitely not insurmountable. Okay, well, um, thank you to uh, Alex and Claudia for taking part and uh, stay tuned after the break uh, when I'll be joined by reporters Imogen Tew and Amy Austin to discuss some of this week's news. And welcome back to the FT Advisor podcast. Uh, with me to discuss some of the issues that they've been covering in the news uh, over the past week or so are Imogen Tew and Amy Austin, two of uh, FT Advisor's most intrepid reporters. Hello okay. both. Hello. Hello. So, Amy, one of the things that's been a uh, hot button issue uh, over the last couple of days and what you've been covering recently has been the issue of tax. Obviously, there's been a lot of money being spent uh, on the coronavirus um, economic support packages, such, such as the furlough scheme. Um, so there's a lot of debate about where the government should get this money back. Um, and pensions is one of the areas that's being suggested, isn't it? Yeah, it's they're quite 
you know, they're looking into pensions quite heavily. I mean, this hasn't been a recent issue. I mean, they look back when, you know, Savage Javid was in charge and it's always been an issue that keeps coming to the forefront. Yeah, pensions tax, uh, reform of pensions tax relief is something that comes up um, uh, again and again. Um, What's Every single budget, isn't it, touted and, and yeah. they never quite make it over the line. <laughs> I'm always poised with my pen to, you know, yeah. write the write the lead and it never ever comes out. <laughs> so what what are the um what are the arguments for and against uh, this uh, using pensions tax relief to find some of the money that has been spent? Well, you know, it's in a way they're saying it's good because it's it would be on higher earners, not on the lower earners. Um, so, you know, the argument is that higher earners have the money to spare. However, this isn't necessarily necessarily a good idea because it will just disincentivize them to save into a pension and they'll just go elsewhere. They'll look into ISAs and that's where they'll put their money. And, you know, it's a bit of a catch me too because the government's always like, you know, save into pensions. Pensions are good. They're great. But then they're going to do this and then stop higher earners from saving into their pension. And I mean, higher earners are hit quite heavily anyway with, you know, you've got the tapered annual allowance and all that jazz, which we won't go into. That's for another day. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's not it's not looking good for them, but I'm sure, you know, I don't think they will touch it, in my opinion, because I think they'll just face so much backlash from the industry as a whole. But who knows? Strange things have happened. Mm-hmm. And there's also a suggestion that um, the triple lock might be reformed in some way. And now this is the policy where the state pension goes up by the highest of inflation earnings or 2.5%. And um, there's some suggestion that this might be reformed, isn't there? Yeah, because it's quite an issue at the moment because obviously wages are quite low because of the whole furlough scheme. Um, And, you know, this will continue for the rest of the year, perhaps. But then we might see when everyone starts to return back at work, you know, goes to some kind of normal again, we might see, you know, wages increase by like 10%, which means that the government will have to increase the state pension by 10%. And, you know, working age people like us would be the ones footing the bill for this because we pay for it through our national insurance. Um, And, you know, the government will have to foot the bill and it's just going to be madness. So they're saying, you know, Maybe they should reduce it down to just be, you know, 2.5% or inflation, cut the wages out of it entirely. Um, The problem with scrapping it completely is that it's in their manifesto. So they will lose voters. You know, people like the triple lock. They like to know that their state pension will go up every year. Um, So if they do that, they will lose the older voters for sure. Is there a chance, Ames, that they'll do kind of a temporary thing? So they might kind of look at next year as a bit of an anomaly and just just take out the wages earning for for next year, but keep the 2.5 and the inflation and then bring it back so people can't get too annoyed. It's just a temporary measure to kind of mitigate the, the kind of artificial adjustment. I mean, sure, like it's definitely one way around it. I mean, I don't think they can continue with this wage growth unless, you know, the debt's just going to go soaring if it stays with it. You know, they're trying to save debt. It makes no sense to then, you know, look at cutting tax relief or, you know, all the other measures they're looking at, like raising income tax and et cetera. And then they're going to keep the the triple lock and then spend all this money on it. So, um, 
We will see. Mm. Sure. And uh, the Conservative vote does skew slightly out more elderly than, uh, than yes. other parties, doesn't it? So they would be... Uh, they'd grey be, vote. <laughs> grey vote. They'd be penalising their, um, their own base, really, wouldn't they? Um, and, and Imogen, there's also some suggestion that capital gains tax might be uh, in the, uh, yeah. in yeah. the fi- firing line for reform. Absolutely. Um, if anything, I actually think this might be one of the ones kind of more in the crosshairs uh, earlier this year. I'm going to say mid-July, I think, uh, Rishi Sunak um, commissioned a review of capital gains tax in relation to individuals and smaller businesses, basically asking the Office of Tax Simplification to work out how capital gains tax could be, the scope of it could be changed or the different rates could apply. And a big thing was whether um, it was unfair, the levels of income versus kind of investment tax or tax from gains, sorry. So, um I think that actually may be even kind of more in the crosshairs, really, because there's already kind of an ongoing thing there. Um, some people think that that is perfectly valid, um, that the fact that you get kind of taxed more from hard work than um, than gains you've made on investments is unfair. Um, and that, But others say that it could really spook investors and you'll see kind of less people getting involved in the stock market, which I mean, the government really needs people to be involved in the stock market in order to make sure that we don't have a huge pensions deficit in 30 years or whatever. So um, there are mixed feelings about it, but I think I would predict that is kind of higher up the government's list really when it comes to these, Mm. these reforms. Interesting. Okay. So, Amy, what do you think? Uh, if I had to, if I had to ask you to put some money on it, what did you th- what do you think of the chances of pensions tax really finally being reformed uh, <laughs> this time around? Um, on, I'm going to say, I'm not going to say not high because I've had you know my hopes dashed time and time again. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, and Imogen, one of the uh, stories that you've also been looking at is property funds and uh, the impact that um, the financial conduct authorities' recent proposals have had. Um, remind me what is the the details of what the FCA's proposed, just for our listeners. Sake. Sure. Yeah. So um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, the FCA put out a consultation paper about uh, open-ended property funds and how Uh, to solve the mismatch between the illiquid assets of property and the liquid nature that is needed for daily dealing in these funds. Um, One of their proposals, the main part of the paper really, was um, to suggest an 180-day wait. So an investor can ask to pull their money out of the property fund. Uh, They won't get it until 180 days later. And... um, the va- they won't know the value either until they get it because it will depend on the on the market at the time. This is basically in order to make sure the fund manager isn't having to force sell any properties that kind of uh, a worse price than they could get. It means they can plan for redemptions better, and you're basically hopefully going to avoid situations where properties have to be gated because there's been a rush of redemptions from investors. Um, so yeah, that that's the proposal. Okay, that's a long time. I ordered something on Amazon last week, and it came the same day. So 180 days is a, is a yeah, long I mean, time to wait. I mean, it's six months. I think when I yeah. first read it, I kind of thought 180 days, and then I realised half a year. I mean, I would not want to be making predictions about what my property investments, if I had them, would be up to in six months' time at the moment. So I think yeah, it's gonna it's gonna cause a headache for for people. 
Sure. So the thing that you found is that there's been, or that there's likely to be a strong pivot towards um, real estate investment trusts. Yeah, exactly. So I think uh, there are some people that think that this will just spell the end for retail investors in open-ended property funds, whether that be because they don't want to wait that long, whether because it makes the investment unsuitable for advisors, whether because it's a headache for platforms, whatever it is, uh, they'll spell the end. And for investors that want to remain invested in property um, without going out and buying a building themselves, REITs are a really good alternative, right? So real estate investment trusts, uh, you buy shares in a company that buys properties. So you still get your exposure to property, but instead of... um, you will always be able to sell that share. Um, It might be a massive discount, so you might be still losing money, but you're always going to be able to sell that share, whereas open-ended property funds, they can gate and your money's trapped inside. Okay. Alan, what are the positives and negatives of of that move? Um, Yeah, so, I mean, the positives are primarily um, the problems with open-ended funds, right? So the fact that um, you are not the illiquid asset is more suited to the investment structure. So you're not going to be gated. You're not, managers aren't going to have to force, aren't going to be forced to sell a property at a lower cost, potentially hurting investors remaining in the fund. Um, it's, it's a more suited structure to the illiquid nature of property, which basically means that investors are a bit more protected. Um, some have argued, however, though, that realistically, if the property market tanks, then all that's going to happen is the the investment trust is going to be trading a, a massive discount and the investor if they pull up pull out their money now will have lost a lot of the funds a lot of their funds anyway which means that the investor may feel as trapped as if they were in an open ended property fund um, another negative is potentially that because REIT, a REIT is a company and therefore is on the stock exchange they are just as um exposed to stock market fluctuations as the stock market is. So you don't get that property diversification that you get with an open-ended property fund, which is more resilient in a stock market crash. Sure, I see. And I guess, um, just thinking aloud, I guess one one of the issues that you sometimes get with platforms is that investment trusts aren't necessarily always available on them. So um, uh, a REIT being an investment trust, I'm not sure whether um, there's going to be that much availability of REITs on, on, on platforms, but I guess we'll have to see. It's uh, early days. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a great point. Um, advisors have notoriously not been too kind of open to investment trust. And I think that's primarily due to the fact it's not easy to invest in them as it is open-ended funds, primarily because, as you say, they're not on platforms. So I guess it's a bit of a wait and see. I mean, important to note, these aren't definite proposals. The FCA may change its mind on this and it might not go ahead. Um, But it'd be interesting to see whether um, retail investors are resilient and stick out the six-month wait to stay in the open-ended property fund structure or whether um, they do kind of completely exit it and we'll see a rise of the REITs who knows but um it's definitely yeah it's definitely one we're going to be watching closely cool well it sounds like you've already written the headline uh so (laughs) great um well thank you amy and thank you imogen for your time and thank you everybody for tuning in and tuning again next week for the next edition thank you 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.